Good afternoon, everyone. We are all familiar with the trend of late of Californians who come to Texas. And today we have the rare Texan who has come to California. I have the distinct pleasure and honor to introduce our luncheon speaker, Judge Andrew Oldham. Judge Oldham has served on the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit since July of 2018. Before ascending to the bench, he served as general counsel to Texas Governor Greg Abbott, where he advised the governor on a range of issues under, fate and, under federal and state law. Before that, he served as Deputy Solicitor General for the state of Texas, where he represented Texas in federal courts across the country, including twice before the U.S. Supreme Court. Before heading to Texas, Judge Oldham was an attorney at Kellogg Hansen in Washington, D.C. His practice focused on appellate litigation in federal courts of appeals throughout the country. Before entering private practice, Judge Oldham served as a law clerk to Justice Sam Alito and to Judge David Sentel. He also worked at the Office of Legal Counsel at the U.S. Department of Justice. Judge Oldham earned a BA from the University of Virginia with highest honors and served um, a Truman Scholar, uh, earned a Truman Scholarship for graduate school, uh, graduated from Cambridge University and from Harvard Law School. We are thrilled to host him today to offer our keynote remarks at lunch. Judge Oldham, the floor is yours. Um, thank you very much, um, Lisa, for that amazing introduction. I am so honored um, and grateful to be here for several reasons. Um, I'm deeply grateful to Leonard, um, to Dean, to Jean, um, and Lisa, everyone from the Federal Society, obviously from the Western Chapters Conference, uh, for putting together uh, this amazing day to talk about uh, the Anti-Federalists and their contribution to the American founding. Um, and I cannot imagine <clears throat> a better place anywhere in the United States that we could do it um, than at the Reagan Library, um, a place that's obviously beautiful um, from the outside, but is also um, in, in honor to a man who is deeply skeptical um, of centralized power. It's humbling to me how many people have come out um, to study this topic, um, to think about the Anti-Federalists. Um, I want to start uh, quickly because it is um, in many ways a travesty that we have gotten this far through the day without talking about a man who cannot or could not join us today, and that is Herbert Storing, um, who was a professor at the University of Virginia. Um, his life's work was composing this seven-volume set, The Complete Anti-Federalist. Um, and before you go onto your phones and try to get it to trend on Amazon, um, <laughs> it, it has been out of print since 1981. Um, and, and that is a great, great travesty for a lot of reasons. Most of what we know about the Anti-Federalists, including what I'm going to talk about today, um, which is who the people were behind the pseudonyms, what the pseudonyms meant, um, and who these actual people were, they, it comes from Herbert Storing and his life's work, which was to put together this, this seven-volume set. Um, he sent it to the University of Chicago Press in 1977, and then tragically, um, almost immediately after he sends this book off to be published, he passes away unexpectedly um, at the age of 49. Um, and it was brought to press, it was brought to fruition by Murray Dry, who um, was his dedicated research assistant, is now um, a, a continuing to lecture and is a professor in Middlebury in, in uh, Vermont. And without this book, without those men um, who put together, who methodically went through and researched who the Anti-Federalists were, what they thought, what they wrote, where they were, um, how they collaborated, um, none of this uh, would have been possible. Now, as I mentioned, this book has been out of print for 40 years. Um, and I think it is incredible 
um, given the outpouring of support for this conference, the number of you that are in the audience, um, I'm quite confident that if the, the editors from the University of Chicago Press saw this and understood um, the interest that we have in it, um, that it wouldn't be out of print uh, for much longer. So I have gone around um, and traveled all over the United States to talk about the topic of the anti-federalists. And when um, I was asked to give this, the, the lunchtime address to you, I, my brain was teeming with different ideas of things to talk about. We could, we could talk about Article I powers and the anti-federalist concerns about Congress, or Article II and the anti-federalist concerns about the administrative state, or Article III and the anti-federalist concerns that judges would not be, as Hamilton so, um, so hoped, strictly bound down by law and precedent. We could talk about um, Article IV and the states. We could talk about the supremacy clause. Um, any number of things um, that we could do with the Anti-Federalists. Um, of course, as I was thinking about that, I also remembered that I've been to, I don't know how many of these lunchtime talks, um, and I've sat in the audience for so many of these, and I divined from those experiences basically two rules. One is be brief, um, and two is whatever you do, don't use PowerPoint. Oh my God. Um, is there anything worse than trying to enjoy chocolate cake and coffee while someone is droning on with text in a PowerPoint presentation? So um, I do have a PowerPoint up. Um, <clears throat> and I'm, I promise you I'm not setting you up for an equally long and boring um, talk. I promise I will be short largely because I'm not sure of how long I will keep my voice. Um, but two, I'm not going to use the PowerPoint um, in a traditional way. It's really just for pictures. And the, the reason I want to show you the pictures is because I want to try to bring life to the Anti-Federalists. I want to try to bring them into some sharper relief in a way that is easy to remember, that's easy to understand, that's easy to see behind the pseudonyms of exactly the meaning um, that the Anti-Federalists were trying to communicate at the founding, and hopefully through that exercise convince you that they remain as relevant today as they were in 1787. So let's start with something that we all know and understand, and that's the Federalists, right? So we know these three men. We know, obviously, Madison, we know Hamilton, and we know John Jay, all famous before, way before, um, as Judge Thapar mentioned, one of them shot to Broadway fame, right? We, we, these all, all of these men have, have led long and distinguished um, careers in public service. Madison was the leader of the first Congress, um, in which he, among other things, um, authored the Bill of Rights. Jay was the Chief Justice of the United States, and obviously Hamilton um, was the Secretary of the Treasury, right? They wrote 85 papers. We've all read them, right? We've all read these, these the Federalist Papers. They were all published in New York. Um, one thing that we don't talk about a lot um, at Federalist Society events is their pseudonym, Publius. Who, who was Publius? Um, we talk a little bit about why they wrote under pseudonym but we don't talk about who actually Publius was. Well, Publius was an honorific to this man, Publius Valerius Publicola, who was one of the four men who led the Roman Revolution. He was elected to the Second Consulate of Rome, and when he was elected to the Second Consulate of Rome, he started to build a house made out of marble up on the top of a hill overlooking the Roman Senate. And this led to a lot of fear and consternation amongst the people of Rome. They thought, oh my gosh, we have this, re this revolution, we've deposed the king, we're trying to institute this republic, and here we have elected to the second consulate, this man who is, thinks of himself as higher than us, building his house upon the hill, he's gonna reinstitute um, the Roman monarchy. How horrible. To which um, 
uh, Publius in this famous um, picture by Mary Evans, says, I have just liberated Rome bravely, but now I am slandered. I am the bitterest enemy of the foreign kings, so I should not be accused of wanting to be the king. And he famously tore down his house, stone by stone, brick by brick, and cast the stones to the bottom of the hill in his sign of virtue um, to the Roman Republic and his commitment um, to be a man um, of, of the people. So those are the Federalists, right? And since we all picked up our first version um, of Clinton Rossiter, we've read these, we know them, we understand um, all 85 of their papers. If you haven't read them cover to cover like a book, I highly encourage you to do it. I think it's often um, one of the great sins of relying on the Federalist Papers is that we look at one or the other, we think, oh, I have a question about Article 3, so I'm going to read Federalist 78. They were meant to be read as a unit, um, and so I would highly encourage you to do it if you haven't. So let's now turn to the Anti-Federalists. Like their Federalist opponents, they named themselves named themselves after leaders of the Roman Republic. So there's obviously Brutus, we've talked about him a fair amount today. There was Cato, and then of Cincinnatus. Okay? And for much of American history, this is how we understood these people, right? Faceless pseudonyms, right? We understood where the names come from. They have something vaguely to do with leaders of Rome, um, but otherwise forgotten and otherwise not meaningful. So today I just want to talk a little bit about what happens when we look behind the masks and we look at who these people really were. So let's start with the one that we've, we've talked about the most today, which is Brutus. So our best guess, and this is certainly Herbert Storing's best guess, is that Brutus's letters were written by this man, who was Robert Yates. His first career, Mr. Yates's first career, was as a surveyor, but he was also a lawyer, an incredibly gifted lawyer in Albany, New York. He served in local politics in the 1770s, and he joined the revolutionary movement. So he was part of the revolutionary spirit in New York in the latter half of the 1770s. In 1776, he helped draft the state of New York's state constitution. So this is certainly somebody who knew something about um, constitutional draftsmanship. And in 1777, Yates was appointed to the state Supreme Court. Now, we've already talked a little bit today, and I won't drone on and repeat his various objections to the Constitution. Instead, I just want to talk about what was the significance of calling himself Brutus. He names, he signs his, his letters Brutus after Lucius Junius Brutus. That's the one, the, the picture that appears on the left. This Roman Brutus was overthrew his uncle, the last king of Rome, and instituted the Roman Republic in 509 BC. Now he, Brutus, the Roman Brutus, was elected to the first consulate of Rome. And his first official act was to require everyone to swear an oath, never to allow any man to become king in Rome again. His descendant, Brutus the Younger, famously killed Julius Caesar, the et tu Brute, we all know from high school, right? Some 450 years later, when Caesar attended to assume too much power. So the name Brutus, when you sign the paper Brutus, connotes to the reader both the founder of a great republic, Brutus as, as the person who both overthrows the king and serves in the first consulate, um, and the opponent of monarchs and tyrants. And you have to think that the symbolism of, the, of this name was so powerful that it influenced Madison, Hamilton, and Jay. Because remember, the anti-federalist essays, almost 
each each one um, each one individually were written before their Federalist counterparts. Right, Sentinel One was written se several weeks before Federalist One, and the same is true of Brutus's essays written before Publius's responses. Right, so the Anti-Federalists were the first movers, and Yates was the first to choose his pseudonym. So you have to think that choosing the first consul of Rome, or someone who served on the first consulate of Rome, influences Madison, Hamilton, and Jay in choosing Publius. Remember, Brutus wrote his essays also in New York, which is where all of the Federalist essays were written. And so in many ways, this was the beginning of the debate. Brutus both in choosing where we were going to publish the, 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 the papers, right, in New York, and also in choosing the name. And I like to think also um, that, that at least Madison, Hamilton, and Jay smarted a little bit over the fact that they got the second draft pick. Um, so let's talk about Cato. So many believe that Cato, um, his papers were written by George Clinton. He was the governor of New York. Um, and he was later the fourth vice president of the United States. Um, his papers uh, were signed in honor of Cato the Younger, whose bust you see there on, on the left. Cato the Younger famously committed suicide rather than live under Caesar's rule. He was lionized in Addison's 1713 play, Cato, A Tragedy, as a martyr to the Roman Republican cause. And this play was so popular at the founding that George Washington had it commissioned and played while his troops were embedded down in Valley Forge. So this name, Cato, it oozes with skepticism of executive power. And some of his most powerful essays, and I'm thinking in particular here of Cato's fourth essay, are deeply skeptical of the executive power vested by the United States Constitution um, in what today we would think of as the administrative state. So before we move on to um, Cincinnatus and others, I do think you have to stop and think just a moment about the power of New York and de the delegation that it sent to the Constitutional Convention. So we all know Hamilton. We just talked about Clinton, Yates, and then the forgotten John Lansing. So in the spring of 1787, George Clinton is the governor of New York. And the governor and the legislature of New York commissions three deputies, the three men on the bottom, Hamilton, Yates, and Lansing, and sends them off to go to Philadelphia to meet in, in, in the convention hall to debate um, what would become the new constitution, as Judge Lepar mentioned earlier, what should have been or was contemplated to be by these delegates revisions to the Articles um, of Confederation. This, the, these four men and the pact that they had about revising the Articles of Confederation fell apart around the first week of July, around the 4th of July in 1787. Yates and Lansing, the two men on the right, the bottom right, they both leave. Um, and they wrote one of the most powerful anti-federalist essays in all of Storing's seven-volume set to explain why. And they wrote it to George Clinton. Right? So the two men on the right write a letter to George Clinton, and they say, we are leaving for two reasons. Our principal reason is a rule of law objection. We think that we as deputies sent to the convention were sent to revise the articles, not to throw them in the trash can. And their second concern was what the new constitution would have to say about federalism. Their biggest concern, and it's articulated in this great letter, which they did not use pseudonyms to write. They wrote in their own pen with their own names to their own governor, say, 
with this Constitution, our principal threat is that the states will become wards of the federal government and that they will lose their power and their autonomy on behalf of the people. Hamilton, of course, obviously stays behind. Hamilton obviously stays in the convention hall and he continues to speak, participate. We could have a whole, con we could have a whole panel on whether and to what extent he was lawfully authorized to do so, having lost, lost the quorum of his delegation um, from, the, from the state of New York. He obviously signed the Constitution, wrote several of the Federalist Papers, um, and came on to be a, fa a famous founding father. But in many ways, these four men, the four men from New York, they perfectly illustrate the Federalist, Anti-Federalist debate, they perfectly illustrate the fissure at the founding, and they perfectly illustrate the continuing relevance of the Anti-Federalists to the conversation today. All right, let's go back to the, to the, to the Romans. We, can't, we cannot talk about the topic without talking about Cincinnatus. Um, this is Cincinnatus. Um, many think that Cincinnatus's papers were written by Richard Henry Lee um, of Virginia, who was the president of the Continental Congress. Now, Cincinnatus was a legendary figure of civic virtue in Rome. He was the third consul of Rome. You're starting to sense a pattern here, right? We're just we're sort of progressively working through the Roman consuls. Um, in 460 BC, for a brief time after Publius was killed, right? Brutus, Publius, Cincinnatus. He retires to the countryside, and then in 458 BC, Rome is invaded um, and an emergency ensues. A group of senators runs out to Cincinnatus' farm where they find him at his plow. That's what this, this, um, the statue connotes, his foot is on his plow. And they give him, they're begging him, please, Cincinnatus, come back and help us defend the Roman Republic. And they give him nearly autocratic power as an enticement, please come back. He takes it, amazingly, um, he, he leads the Romans to a complete and total victory at the Battle of Algidus. And 15 days after getting all of the power, he relinquishes it, and which is an amazing thing to think about at the time when, when, when governments were not um, nearly as lawful in the way that they transferred power um, as they are today. So George Washington obviously models um, his resignation after his second term on Cincinnatus. But that's not um, the only uh, parallel between Washington and Cincinnatus. Um, Washington was also a member of the Society of the Cincinnati. This was our nation's very first veterans organization. Okay? It was founded in 1783 in New York. The membership of the Society of the Cincinnati was originally limited to veterans of the, of the Revolutionary War. And then the membership was inherited through primogenitor. Right? And it was a veritable who's who of American society. The first meeting of the Society of the Cincinnatus was chaired by none other than Alexander Hamilton, and they elected as their president, George Washington. They were headquartered in Philadelphia. So during the Constitutional Convention in 1787, George Washington could take breaks at lunch from the convention hall, and he could walk across the street to the Society of the Cincinnati um, to meet with his other um, Cincinnatians, if that's word. 23 of the 55 men who signed the Constitution were members of this society, right? So it, this, is the, this is originally the original who's who um, of, the American, of American government. That this might all sound super cool, right? Kind of, kind of neat. Um, but to the anti-federalists, that's terrifying, right? That is completely terrifying. This looks like an aristocracy. The membership is limited to elites. Um, I, I said it was veterans of the, of the Revolutionary War. It's true, but only officers, not enlisted men. Um, membership passes hereditarily. 
tons of power, all of this accretion, and all of this is done in secret. Remember, we, uh, Professor Bomsai mentioned that the meetings in, the, in Philadelphia were done in secret, so were the meetings of the Society of Cincinnati, right? So it's all done in secret, hereditary, tons of power, lots of elites. And all of that leads to what I think is one of the most colorful criticisms of the Constitution um, written in the 1780s. And it was written by a person who we know only as a Federalist, whose essay, as far as I know, is in print only in Herbert Storing's book, or um, collection of books. And he wrote this essay in the Boston Gazette, November 26th, 1787. So it was just a couple months after the Constitution comes out of Philadelphia and is received to the people. And he asks, who is it exactly who is demanding that we adopt this Constitution? Like, who is it that's selling us this, this hot mess of a document, um, he says, um, and is trying to get us to take it? Well, he says, it's the rich and the powerful. That's who. That's who wants us to adopt it. These are his words. These consist generally of the noble order of the Cincinnatus, holders of public securities, men of great wealth, and expectations of public office, bankers and lawyers. These with their train of dependents, they form, um, form an aristocratic combination. The lawyers in particular, sorry lawyers, this is for, bad for all of us, I suppose. They keep up an incessant declamation for its adoption like greedy gudgeons. <laughs> they long to satiate their voracious stomachs with the golden bait. Now, if you're wondering what a gudgeon is and you're inclined to Google it, this is a gudgeon. <laughs> a gudgeon is a spineless, toothless, bottom-dwelling fish <laughs> that lives in slow-moving waters around the Potomac River. You might call it a swamp. <laughs> that was a Federalist's concern. Now, not all of the Anti-Federalists um, went by Roman Republican pseudonyms. Um, Professor Bomsai mentioned Federal Farmer. Um, he is one of my favorite exceptions to this. Um, we generally think that Federal Farmer um, was, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, I should, I should have said at the beginning, we, everyone sort of assumed that Federal Farmer also was Richard Henry Lee, right? That Cincinnatus and Federal Farmer, both essays were written by the same man. There is, that is possible. Richard Henry Lee was in New York at the time. There are some stylistic similarities, but I do agree that generally, um, and so does Storing, I should say, which is more important than anything, I think, um, believe that it was Melanchthon Smith um, was, in fact, uh, a federal farmer. He was a lawyer from New York. He served in the Confederation Congress from 1785 to 1788, participated in the state's ratification debates, um, was in many ways a model of anti-federalist uh, thought. And, in, and more importantly for, for our purposes and for those who, who take seriously the Federalist Society and, and, and reading the Federalist Papers and understanding what they say, Federal farmers' essays are the closest thing that the anti-federalists have to a systematic, cogent rebuttal um, to what the anti-federalists, I'm sorry, to what the federalists were saying. Um, you know, one of the big criticisms of anti-federal, of the anti-federalist papers and anti-federalist thought is that they're all over the place. They're kind of, they're sporadic. They're written in different places by different people and different voices with different arguments and different prescriptions and remedies. Um, but the federal farmers' essays are not like that. They were written in two. Um, discrete packets. They were numbered sequentially. I believe there are 18 of them. Um, and they have a consistent and cogent theme to them. Um, oh, and I should also say they also were the only essays that the Anti-Federalists wrote um, that had um, 
a circulation that rivaled the Federalist. I've even read one um, study that suggested that the Federal Farmers' Essays were actually distributed farther, wider, and were better read um, than even the Federalist, if you can believe that. Hamilton in Federalist 68 even credits Federal Farmer as his, quote, most worthy adversary. So this, um, the Federal Farmers' Essays, I think, really do um, merit careful study, not just because of their circulation and their cogency, but also because these essays um, in some ways are the ones, this is the view that prevailed at the founding. Um, you know, Melanchthon Smith was a moderate man. Um, he appeared to recognize the need for the Constitution. His principal argument was he wanted the Constitution amended before it was adopted. He didn't want to adopt it first and amend it second. He wanted to do it the other way around. He lost that debate in Massachusetts when the Massachusetts ratification um, uh, 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 when the state ratifying convention decided instead just to adopt it and ratify it later, I'm sorry, to ratify it now and amend it later. Um, and so when New York took it up a couple months later in their ratification debate, he urged his colleagues um, just to adopt it without um, equivocation, and he in fact voted for the ratification um, of the debate. So if you believe that those who thought the Constitution was perfect when it came out of Philadelphia, they kind of lost because we got the Bill of Rights. And if you take it, if you take the side that um, opposed the Constitution wholesale because it was going to be a disaster. They also lost. In many ways, Smith, who was in the middle, um, was the one who won. So last but not least, um, I cannot, we cannot do this without talking about um, one of my favorites, a Colombian patriot. Um, a Colombian patriot's essays, um, these were written in Boston. Um, for a long time, we assumed that these essays were written by Elbridge Gerry. Elbridge Gerry certainly was a prominent anti-federalist um, as I mentioned at the beginning, he was the fifth vice president um, of the United States. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, but in the 1930s, historians uncovered letters from Gary to this woman, Mercy Otis Warren, thanking her for the essay. And under a Colombian patriot pseudonym, she wrote a paper called Observations on the New Constitution and on the Federal and State Conventions. It was a hugely influential pamphlet um, it, as I said, it was originally printed in Boston, but then circulated in Philadelphia, New York, North Carolina. Wide-ranging critique, critique had like 17 different bases of um, all sorts of objections um, to the Constitution. Um, one of them was that there weren't term limits for members of Congress, which the Supreme Court of the United States relied on her essay by name in the Thornton case. Um, and this was hardly her only literary contribution. Um, she had several influential writings that fomented patriotic fervor in the run-up to the Revolutionary War. In 1805, she wrote a three-volume um, historical treatise called The History of the Rise, Progress, and Termination um, of the American Revolution, um, which Thomas Jefferson ordered both for himself and for all of the members um, of his presidential cabinet. So a hugely influential um, woman. So in closing, and I'm happy to take questions if, um, if, if folks have them, um, one of the things that, that has always set the Federal Society apart is this, it is a place where we are constantly talking about the terms of the debate and broadening the terms of the debate. And today, I think, is an incredible day where we can recognize the need to broaden the debate to include not just the Federalist Papers, but also um, the Anti-Federalist Papers. One of my favorite um, law professors, one of my mentors in law school, John Manning, um, once wrote that we should never care about the Federalist Papers because they were just propaganda and anonymous propaganda at that. 
Um, as much as I respect Professor Manning, now Dean Manning, um, I did not take that advice um, when I went to my very first Federalist Society event when I was at one Ellen Law School and picked up my Clinton Rossiter. Um, but I hope that you will agree with me um, that when we peel back the mask of the people that were writing behind these pseudonyms and we start to talk about what it, who they were and what they thought, that the men and the women who participated in this great debate back then and do at this Federal Society event today are just as relevant today, just as relevant today as they were in 1787. Thank you guys very much. Oh, sure. Would you repeat again the name of the professor in the seven-volume book that yeah. you referred to earlier? I didn't catch it. Yes. So it's Herbert Storing. Herbert Storing is his name, um, S-T-O-R-I-N-G. Um, and the book is called The Complete Anti-Federalist. Um, and one of the reasons it's an extraordinary piece of work is that he collects by state from primary sources, all of the various materials from, he'll do New York and then he'll do Pennsylvania. He's missing North Carolina, so it's not quite complete, but it's hard to fault him for that. Um, because I don't think anybody else has found North Carolina either. Uh, and it's, it's an extraordinary work. It includes his editorial commentary on, on um, what was going on, how to understand the relation between the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist. Um, and as I say, it's, it's a shame that, we, that it's not more generally available. I wish I could tell you to go buy it on Amazon, but I can't. Curious, uh, Gene Meyer, I'm just curious to a response to, or a reaction to the, the line I've often heard about this, which is essentially the anti-federalist attitude was uh, to the federal saying, well, okay, we, you know, if we're going to be a serious country, we've got to have this constitution. And to some degree, it seemed to me their, their alternate reaction to that was, we're not really worried about being a serious country. We're worried about being able to freely, freely farm and, and, and live our lives. Is that a fair summary at all or not? Well, I, and this is, I think, I'll give you two answers. One, um, there certainly is a strain of that, and I do think there are some anti-federalists who probably would have agreed um, with that statement, that really they just wanted, um, they, you know, they, they, it, was, it was just about wanting to farm and, and you know, beyond with their lives. Although, as I, I hope that just going through some of the people who were writing on the anti-federalist thought, these weren't all farmers. These were not all yeomen. These were not. You know, these were some of the the great um, and aristocratic elite, uh, elites of the time, um, to the extent that we had such things in the 18th century in America. And we didn't talk about Agrippa, who was the librarian at Harvard. Um, you know, these were highly intellectual and incredibly um, accomplished um, men and women uh, of the time. But I think part of really what um, I, I should also say, because there was such a disparity in the way that they thought and what they were looking for, I do think that is one of the most effective of the Federalists' reposts to all of this stuff that the Anti-Federalists were saying is that you're all over the place, right? Some people you know, would probably agree with what Gene had to say. Some would, would say, no, really, to go back to our first panel today, it wasn't about limited government and, you know, don't proverbially tread on me. It was much more about Republican principles of people being able to control those who were governing over them. And then there were people kind of in the middle, like Melanchthon Smith, who 
really recognized the need. I mean, it wasn't like they, no one knew about Shay's Rebellion, right? <laughs> People understood that there was a need for action at the time, that the Articles of Confederation clearly had problems. Rhode Island and its ability to thwart things in the, in the Congress um, at the time were, when, they had, when you needed unanimous consent of all the states to do anything was a serious obstacle. And so people like Melanchthon Smith would say, no, no, I would recognize it. We need to do something different. We need to have reforms. And really, we're just going to have a debate on the merits of um, you know, what, what's the best way to accomplish what we're really trying to do, which is to have a Republican form of government. Hey, John. things I remember from the first volume of Story, and I think it was he that wrote, wrote it, not Murray Dry, but maybe I'm wrong on that. And I mentioned one that he made the point that the Anti-Federalists wanted the statement on a Bill of Rights more as a symbolic or a hortatory approach to rights. And the other was that after they lost the battle, one of the prominent Anti-Federalists said, well, now since we've lost and they've got the Constitution, the most important thing is that we get down to issues of morality. Mm -hmm. Now, as Gene Meyer well knows, when the Federalist Society was founded, there were many people who said to him, it should be called the Anti-Federalist Society. <laughs> and social conservatives would probably fit in that, in that category. But wasn't the, the one of the fundamental differences between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists was their belief of the capability and the American people for civic virtue in the ancient Roman sense. That, so that is true. Um, there, a lot of Anti-Federalist writing talks about the concept of virtue. Um, and, the, and, I, and I think this is probably true of the Federalists as well, in the sense that what they really meant by virtue was the ability of people in power to have something other than just total venal self-interest um, and, and, and in the front of their mind, an ability to put the public good in front of their own private good. Um, and I think one of the things that the Anti-Federalists are most worried about is that the more distance you put between me, the person who's being governed and regulated, and and A, the person who um, is the one doing the governing and the regulating, the harder it is for us to have in common a sense of what is the public good, the harder it is for us to have a check where I can make sure that you're not letting your own selfishness or venality or whatever trump our collective um, governance project. And so I do think that that, um, the, that is a strain that runs throughout all of anti-federalist thought is that the reason you wanna have a, a, a tighter connection between the, the, the governed and the governing is that it, it makes it easier for everyone to share a sense of civic virtue and to be on the same t page about what that kind of civic virtue is. I'll also just say, I, I do think that um, volume one uh, um, of the Complete Anti-Federalists, which, which is called What the Anti-Federalists Were For, um, was written exclusively uh, by, by Herbert Storing. It's, it's an incredible volume because it, it says that really the Anti-Federalist project was not so much to be anti anything, right? Their name makes you think that they were just the no party to say, we object, we object, no, 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 no. They actually had a positive philosophy and they had a thought about what good governments would look like, what civic engagement would look like, what virtue meant, how a republic should operate. Yeah, Roger. Uh, the emphasis on the virtuous people um, runs through the, the, the anti-federalist papers. But how did they square that 
with what was going on under the Articles, whereby you had the virtuous people running roughshod over individuals through abrogation of contracts mm -hmm. uh, and other measures that uh, gave rise to the need for a more distant government to check the kind of local tyranny of the majority mm -hmm. that was evident for the anti-federalists. Mm -hmm. you know, so those who are greater scholars on this topic than I may have a, a different view if they've read something that... Um, that I haven't. But I will say that one of the things that strikes me the most in reading through Storing's books and some of the anti-federalist papers is that there are large blind spots where they just don't, right? So for example, I just mentioned Shays' Rebellion, right? <laughs> there was an actual legitimate emergency that the government was incapable of handling um, in the 1780s. You don't read in the anti-federalists a bunch of like, okay, we get it, there's a serious problem. Let's go deal with it. A lot of anti-federalist thought says things like, well, hold on, what's the emergency? What emergency? You know, as if like, I can't see it, so it must not be going on. Um, and I think that's probably true um, of some of these other, you know, the other areas that you mentioned, which is that rather than have sort of a systematic explanation for it, um, I think it's a fair criticism to say that sometimes they would just ignore it. And instead they would just say, well, this constitution has these following 11 problems, not our current constitution has 11 problems. Let's figure out how to solve them. Judge Oldham. Oh, yes. Oh, hey there. Yeah. But I think um, we should probably make yours the last question. I think we'll write it too. Thank you for your yeah. great presentation. I know in Texas you were interested in the topic of constitutional amendment. If the, the anti-feds were revived today and they could offer one constitutional amendment, what do you think it would be? Oh, man. <laughs> I, have no, I have no idea. Um, I have no idea. I, you know, I, I do think that... Um, they would be deeply skeptical, as the last panel had mentioned, um, of the 17th Amendment. Um, because I, I, I do think that one of the things that the anti-federalists were really concerned about were the, the vertical separation of powers between the federal government and the state governments. And when, you, when, the, when the state legislatures no longer have a role in deciding who represents the states in the Senate, um, I do think that, that the anti-federalists would have a serious concern, <laughs> perhaps apoplexy, um, on, that, on that particular topic. Well, thank you all again very much for coming. Thank you.